linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin today's podcast by uh, thanking Toby E. for his generous donation to the salon that helps uh, offset some of the expenses uh, incurred in producing these podcasts. Uh, really appreciate your help, Toby. Thank you very much. Well, uh, today I'm uh, dipping back into that old box of tapes that Ralph Abraham loaned me, uh, and I'm going to play another uh, trialogue that he recorded uh, between Terrence McKenna, Rupert Sheldrake, and himself. And uh, while it may not be as uh, compelling as some of their discussions about psychedelics, there, uh, there are a couple of things that make this recording really stand out for me. Uh, the first is the fact that, uh, you know, I've always kind of wondered what all of those uh, non-public trilogues were like. You know, uh, what did they really talk about when they got together? Well, uh, what we're about to hear is a recording from one of those sessions. This trilogue, or uh, focused conversation, took place on the Big Island of Hawaii sometime in 1994. As I recall, uh, Ralph told me that after the publication of their Trilogues at the Edge of the West book uh, in 1992, they decided to record some of their private conversations in the hopes that uh, maybe another book or two would emerge. Now, as far as I know, uh, there wasn't a book that uh, emerged from the trialogue we are about to hear, but their topic remains one of great interest for us yet today, and that is the, the course of evolution. At, uh, at least it is uh, of great interest of us, uh, those of us who <laughs> like to think of ourselves as evolutionaries. Huh? So uh, now let's join Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and uh, Rupert Sheldrake as they sit around the kitchen table and uh, kick around a few ideas about evolution. This particular trialogue, which is Hawaii, what it tells us about evolution, how it relates to island ecosystems and their evolutionary progress generally, falls to me because in the course of my life, uh, as chance would have it, I visited most of the major uh, theaters of evolution that involve island uh, groups that are considered to be exemplars of the various types of island groups on the planet. Hawaii, where we are recording these trialogues, is of course a group of mid-ocean volcanic islands. The only other mid-ocean volcanic island groups in the world are the Azores and the Seychelles. They offer great contrast to Hawaii, particularly the Seychelles, which as a portion of the Madagascan landmass have been above water some 300 million years, longer than any other place on the planet. And so the evolutionary processes there offer a dramatic contrast to how evolution has proceeded in the Hawaiian Islands. The Hawaiian Islands represent a unique case because of the size of the volcanic uh, calderas and vents beneath the Pacific floor that have created them. In fact, these vents and uh, volcanic systems, the largest on the planet. 
So what we have in Hawaii is uh, a tectonic plate sliding slowly toward uh, southern Russia and Japan that is crossing over a weak place in the Earth's crust and uh, a place where the uh, uh, core magma of the planet lies a considerable percentage closer to the surface than anywhere on Earth. And the result of this situation is a series of islands formed in the same spot that each, after its volcanic birth, is rafted on the continental plate uh, off toward uh, the northwest. The life in the Hawaiian Islands uh, shows 30 to 35 years of endemicism by the ordinary rates of gene change that biologists recognize. Nevertheless, geologically speaking, no Hawaiian island is older than 12 million years. The obvious interpretation of these facts is that life arose out here on islands which no longer exist. And as islands rose and fell, the life hopscotched from one island to another, and indeed the dispersal rates of birds, tree snails, and this sort of thing moving eastward from Kauai across Oahu, Molokai, Maui to the Big Island show that this gradient is still operable. Kauai is the most species, the forests of Kauai are the most species rich forests in the, of the major islands. Hawaii's climate forests are the most species poor because. Uh, animals are still arriving here from the other islands. Um, because these volcanoes are so huge, Hawaii has a complete range of ecological systems from sea level to 14,000 feet, which is virtually the entire range on the planet in which life is able to locate itself. Uh, the volcano itself is, in fact, by volume, the world's largest mountain, because what it represents is a 14,000-foot mountain before it breaks through to sea level, because it's rising from the Pacific floor, and in this part of the world, the Pacific floor is 13,000 feet deep. So this island was, in, uh, this mountain was enormous before it ever broke water. It now rises 13,000 feet above sea level, and its sister mountain, Mauna Kea, is only shorter by 120 feet. So what has been created out here is uh, a very closed ecosystem, far from any continental landmass. The forms of life which arrive here arrive uh, on rafted debris or tucked into the feathers of, uh, of migratory birds or in some other highly improbable fashion. What we see here is a winnowing of continental species based on uh, extreme improbability. As an example, uh, a very common Sierra uh, Nevada wildflower of no great distinction 
apparently some millions of years ago, a single seed arrived on Maui and has created, a, by through backcrossing, has created a mutated race of plants that we know as the Hawaiian silver sword, which is one of the most bizarre plants that the islands have produced. In terms of uh, islands within islands, the fractal adumbration of nature, it's very evident here. For example, because the island is created uh, by a series of flows of varying ages, there is a constant process in which ecosystems become islanded by lava flows, cutting them off. And so you have a series of micro-islands of species that uh, develop independently of each other, even though they may only be some few miles apart, but separated by a landscape so toxic and desolate that there is very little intermixing of genes. This is why this is thought to have been a formative factor in the evolution of the Hawaiian Drosophila, which of course were very, very useful in early studies of genetics because the chromosomes of the Hawaiian Drosophila are 10,000 times larger than the ordinary Drosophila chromosomes and can actually, in the era before electron microscopes, you could actually color band uh, with certain dyes uh, the chromosomes of these Drosophila. And early chromosome unraveling went forward through these studies. So, uh, in terms of extrapolating all of this particular natural history data to some sort of general model, I think what life on islands brings home to us is that uh, the Earth itself is an island. I've been saying for many, many years that one of the most revolutionary yet totally trivial and predictable revolutions sure to come in biology is the recognition that uh, all these models of, is of island isolation and species dispersion across oceans can easily be expanded to the three-dimensional ocean of outer space. Very, very clearly, viruses, uh, 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 pions, gene fragments, uh, this sort of thing percolates between the stars. Uh, as simply statistically a very low component of the percolation of inorganic matter between the stars. Indeed, there have been many attempts uh, to establish this idea of Fred Hoyle and the theory of the cometary origin of life. Some of these ideas have gone forward. It seems to me perfectly obvious that in time this will be embraced. After all, viruses can freeze down to crystalline states that are almost minerals. And as for uh, dispersion between uh, celestial bodies, it's now generally agreed that a number of Antarctic meteorites that have been recovered are in fact fragments of Mars. So uh, the, the work on island dispersal patterns and the statistics and the mechanics of this will eventually play a role in modeling how life evolves uh, in the galaxy. 
some of the other islands that I've been fortunate enough to relate to uh, were, for example, the Indonesian islands, which are the absolute other spectrum of the class of tropical islands, because what we have here in Hawaii, as I said, is mid-ocean islands far from continental floras and faunas. What we have in Indonesia is, in fact, a submerged continent. As recently as 120,000 years ago, Indonesia, from Sumatra to New Guinea, was a single landmass. And in the process of its subsidence, the sea filled in the low spots so that there is a direct correlation between species differentiation on any two Indonesian islands and the depth of the sea between them. And these correlations have been shown over and over. One of the great conundrums of 19th century biology was the so-called problem of Wallace's line. Wallace believed that between the island of Bali and Lompoc and then going west of Celebes, you could draw a line which was the line of convergence between the Austral-Papuan biogeographical zones and the Asian-Malayan zones. Statistical studies, Ernst Meyer principally, have disproven this notion. However, uh, I have collected butterflies and stood in these forests on both sides of Wallace's line in several places, and I completely understand and in fact wonder about Meyer's conclusion. I completely understand Wallace's impression because these forests are staggeringly different. The bird calls, the butterflies, but what Meyer seemed to show was that there was no distinct line. There was a gradient from Australia to Malaya in one direction and Malaya to Australia in the other direction. Island groups like this, and I haven't mentioned the Galapagos, but they are another one, are such obvious laboratories of speciation that when Darwin and Wallace and Walter Henry Bates and other people who were grappling in the 19th century with the so-called species problem set out to do their fieldwork, they just could not fail to be impressed by this peculiar theme and variation. Theme and variation, but they could not understand whose fingers strung the harp until they realized that similar populations separated by catastrophes such as the arrival of ocean water or a lava flow or something like that then come under very slightly different selective pressures which cause a very slightly different physical aspect to be taken on. And so in the Amazon basin, for example, you can move 2,000 miles and have only about a 15% replacement in certain butterfly species. In Indonesia, you can cross a strait of water 20 miles wide and have a 70% replacement of butterfly species. And 
Darwin and Wallace familiar with these places, uh, both the continental floras and faunas and the island situation, finally uh, figured out what the mechanism was. And uh, it's a wonderful thing, you know, butterfly uh, diversity, for example, is, an, is a situation where diversity itself Becomes and it confers adaptive advantage because butterflies are largely predated upon by birds. And it's been shown in numerous studies that birds hunt a target image. They have an image of the prey. Well, if through the chance recombination of genes your wing color or wing shape pushes you outside the target spectrum, you will be ignored. And so... Like us. So variety itself becomes uh, a premium in the evolutionary game. Novelty itself then is preserved because novelty uh, confers adaptive advantage in this situation of birds and butterflies. Well, I think the implications of these things lie close to the surface. Uh, we, Earth, is a small island. We are making great changes in its ecological parameters. We are affecting its plant and animal populations. By studying how evolution has shaped island groups, we can appreciate, I think, the, our own small cosmic island and perhaps eventually draw... Uh, politically uh, empowering conclusions from that. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful view of things, Terence. <laughs> marvelous <laughs> and a real delight. Um, the, 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 the main ev the evolutionary puzzle that crossed my mind, <coughs> and if you're said, is that. If islands have this tremendous role in speciation, as all evolutionists believe, and which in fact, as you say, with both Darwin and Wallace provide the classic cases, then um, if we have places where there are con uh, contact, island chains and archipelagos have incredible rates of speciation in Southeast Asia, the Malaysian archipelago, including Malaysia and Indonesia, is in unbelievably species-rich, one of the great creation centers of the world, of species. And, you know, that's the tropical forest I know best, having lived there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the quality of that forest, its creativity, from what you've said, would come from a combination of island, island factors plus mingling of two totally radically different floras, giving that's rise right. to all sorts of new possibilities and combinations. And that it was pumped by the repetitive comings and goings of the sea, which repeatedly islanded populations and then reunited them in periods when the water was concentrated at the top. And presumably also pumped by the ice ages, which exactly. must have compressed all forms of life towards the tropics, and That's then right. there'd been a retreat again away from them at the end of each ice age. Well, that would explain a lot about the pumping, and it makes incredible sense about the Malaysian archipelago. What I don't understand is, on the view of this theory, how the Amazon, which is the large non-island area, comes to be the other major center of species creation and diversity. The, the answer is very simple. It has simply been above ground a very long time. In other words, the, 
the Malaysian Australopithecus situation is probably no more than 70 or 80 million years that that map has looked like that. Uh, the Amazon, on the other hand, has been above water 280 to 300 million years. So simply being in the tropics with three, four, five breeding seasons a year for many organisms and never being inundated by seawater or catastrophe allowed that incredible climax of speciation on a continental landmass. You're right, it didn't happen as far as we know uh, in, in Africa, although Africa is so heavily impacted by human beings that any notion of its original natural history is, is impossible. Hmm. But that's the short answer, that it was just above water a long, long time. But then, you see, we have two methods of speciation. One is spontaneous production of species just by being around a long time, without island separation. The case of the Amazon. The other, we have all the well-understood near-Darwinian mechanisms, speciation, pumping of things, mixing of gene pools, and so on. Well, what pumped the Amazon situation on the micro-level is uh, the meandering of rivers. You see, it's very hard in a climaxed forest situation for any new mutation to have a, a salutary effect. But because rivers meander and destroy forests and create sandbars and an intermediate shifting zone of what is called uh, uninhabited land, so-called uh, um, uh, predatory species can move in there. And that's where the speciation is taking place. Carl Sauer estimated that before the advent of, of culture, of human culture, it was uh, the meandering of rivers was the force promoting plant evolution on the planet. The vast amount of this shifting of boundaries goes on, and it's in that shifting boundary that mutants, new forms, can get hold. That's why. Uh, a predatory species will have the following characteristics. It will be an annual, and it will be a prolific seeder. It will be herbaceous, not woody. In short, it will be a weed, and that's what a weed is. A pioneer a species. A pioneer species, a tremendously predatory species designed for open land, utterly unable to compete in the forest, but in open land, able to take hold very rapidly. Yes, I think though that this, um, there may be a certain proliferation just for its own sake. You see, I think isolation, new environments and so on explain one side of evolution. I think there's another side which neo-Darwinism can't explain because it puts too much emphasis on natural selection. But this is Willis, you know, the great British mm -hmm. botanist who lived on Ceylon, um, and knew the ocean flora well. In the 30s and 40s, had all these things about evolution by divergent mutation rather than natural selection. Mm -hmm. And in Ceylon, he showed that in the, in the Podestumaceae, a group of water plants that live in streams with leaves that float on the water, uh, there's an uh, amazing variety of species in streams and rivers in Ceylon, sometimes many different species growing in the same river. Mm -hmm. And any attempt to account for this in terms of 
you know, marginal differences in leaf shape giving, you know, selective advantage, mm -hmm. just fails. And he shows the same is true of many flower patterns, many tropical leaf forms and so forth. Well, I think you'd have to look at this more closely, um, wings, and how variety itself it somehow confers advantage. Uh, I would go through those plants and look for chemical, very slight chemical variances in the gene expression, because probably this variety is to confuse some some feeder, and, and that it's literally bewildering variety is an excellent defense against predation. It, I've always wondered why, in, like, like the hapu here, an excellent example. Here we have these two tree ferns. They're two distinct species. As far as I can tell, they're distributed in a ratio of 50-50 here. And one has little black stickery um, uh, stems, and the other has a fuzzy brown soft stem. Well, what selective pressure caused stickers to work for one and down to work for the other and they're standing right next to each other. It seems to me there must be a drift of genes or, or simple for variety itself. Well that's Willis's point that, that you have that the life itself is constantly throwing out new forms, novelties, that novelty is the essence of it and unsuccessful novelties would be weeded out. The very successful ones would be a sort of wild success. But a lot of these novelties, which may just be different, you know, two of these two tree ferns work equally well in this environment. Yeah. There may just be lots of entirely equivalent things where you've got novelty for novelty's sake. And that this is the nature of the evolutionary process. And natural selection plays a much smaller role than if you try and explain all forms in terms of the close sculpting of natural selection. Yes, in the Indonesian butterflies, there is this concept of what's called the conspecific species, which means that when you're on Bali, there is a certain butterfly. And then you go to Lompoc, and there is a butterfly which is different from that butterfly and cannot naturally cross with it, and yet is so obviously the same butterfly that it's the conspecific species, and they have been isolated in this way, and so by that means there's variation. And then sometimes these populations can be reunited, and some very small percentage can transfer genes, and then you get even even more variety. Hmm. Well, getting back to Hawaii here, it seems that um, I understood you right that <clears throat> what's unique about um, Hawaii is, is the Hawaiian islands are young and they're maximally oceanic island dead. They're far from the continent. And uh, the process of the population of a new island from a neighboring island is, is visible. And even in the present, and then we see a certain pattern is repeated over and over again, even in the course of a century. So it seems to me that these uh, different examples you're talking about conflate two different processes, more or less, are projected upon the same screen. One is a um, purely biogeographical process, which would be, uh, could at least 
be imagined to be operating the same way without any evolutions. We have only the same species that ever were to be found on Maui are suddenly appearing on Hawaii by a process of, of dispersal, uh, pioneering the successful species, the creation of an ecology suitable for the second species, and their space-time patterns are developed one upon another in a very interesting fractal movie that, to begin with, would have nothing to do with evolution. On top of that, you have, I'm not sure what are the relative timescales of this, then you have an evolutionary process involving speciation after, either, either during or after the dispersal, pioneering, and what do you call it, civilizational process of a brand new island. Is the evolutionary process essential to the population of the new island, or isn't it? Well, I think in the short term it isn't, in the long term it is. Because any form of life arriving in these islands is not, it's not home free. It's then got to contend with this kind of islanding by uh, volcanic flow that I talked about, and other large-scale catastrophic events that are hypothesized to have gone on in the Hawaiian Islands. So basically what we see here is just genes being mixed and stirred probably at a faster rate than in most places. And that's without even mentioning the vast number of plant and animal introductions brought by human beings. One of the other unique things about Hawaii that we didn't enumerate was human beings arrived late. And this, in some sense, gives us a clear picture of what happened. But it's almost as though Hawaii is a speeded-up microcosm of the Earth itself, because probably eight-tenths of the, of the big island is in the pre-archaeozoic phase. In other words, almost abiotic. And then large areas are covered by lichens, a fern or two here in the crevice, and then a small percentage uh, of a post, uh, post cometary impact forest of flowering trees inhabited by so mammals. So the biogeographical process, with or without a kind of modulation by speciation, is uh, biogeographical process is a kind of recapitulation of evolution. That is, there's a resonance between evolution in the past and biogeographical development in the present. So the conflation of these two things is not um, an accident of thought, but because there's a resonance between these Yes, processes. they're fractal in relationship to each other. If you supposed that uh, an animal's genetic heritage never changed, but that it moved across the surface of the earth from one environment to another by being blown and swept there, then nevertheless you would get different forms of this animal because selective pressures are different in different places. So without any change in the genome at all, you would get a series of divergent forms through natural selection in the absence of, uh, of uh, gene. That's why we're different from the little green men in the UFOs. 
<clears throat> well, back to this resonance idea, you you used the word pumping, and I like that, but I think it's a form of, of resonance. There's sort of a forcing or a coupling or a codependence between these two, two different processes. There's a totally physical one, as, for example, new lava flows, the meandering of rivers, the rising of the island, and then, and then it kind of pumps the space-time evolutionary well, pattern it, it, formation it process. Well, it back into the Earth itself. Really, the ice ages are the pump. They raise and lower sea levels. They create deserts and drop humidity. They uh, force change. And they are probably driven by fluctuations in the dynamics of the sun. And this is now pretty well in hand. Um, when therefore ought to correlate with novelty wave. And Have you tried mapping it against yes, the ice thank ages? Thank you for that opportunity <laughs> to... Uh, <laughs> Well, I think we should have a figure of the correlation in our text. <laughs> oh, I have all that. You guess. Well, let's put it in okay. the ice ages <laughs> and the novelty rate. Good. Um, well, I should just point out that the process looks a bit different if you take morphic resonance into account, which standard neo-Darwinian biogeography doesn't. Look? Well, habit then becomes a much more important process. Habit formation. And we know that organisms adapt to new environments. Any given plant, you can take seeds from any of these plants and grow them at different altitudes and in different climates. And in many, they'd survive. But they'd look different from the way they do now. Grow them there for several generations, and they can adapt, and they take on, as botanists say, a new habit. And I think you see that kind of habit formation gives you very rapid evolution. All of us can adapt to change circumstances in a matter of days, or in the case of coming here, or years, in, everything adapts without any gene change or organism change. And it, as it adapts, it forms new habits. Well, behavior is that small margin of adaptability that is supposedly not genetically driven. Well, behavior is one form of uh, an adaptive habit, and we know those best. But uh, the way that plants grow, for example, in different mm -hmm. environments is another. Mm -hmm. They can vary enormously over a range of environments in form and stature. And and leaf shape and so forth. Um, so I think that this gives a much more rapid way of understanding evolution because instead of just random mutation and sculpting by natural selection, you have a positive adaptation of the animal or plant itself to a new environment. It reacts and responds appropriately in a creative way, creating new habits, new subspecies, new forms of life. So this the creative adaptation of life to new circumstances, in my view, is what's going on in, in a way that when you see a plant adapt or an animal learn a new and adaptive pattern of behavior, what you're seeing is the innate creativity of life in action, not blind random mutations, not just physical forces, not just natural selection, but a kind of creativity inherent in all life. Well, I think it was L.L. White who pointed out that uh, a great deal of selection goes on before an organism emerges from the womb, and that to to pretend that natural selection operates uh, on a tabula rasa is completely naive. Uh, the first environment is the environment of the womb, and many don't make it. 
so those who do have already been subject to a process of natural selection and winnowing that was quite intense and is applied mm. to all species. But there's still a large range that can pass through that. In the case of plants, where you don't have wounds, you've got a seedling stage, a fairly brief one. Well, no plant can survive that can't go through that right. unless it propagates vegetatively. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're vulnerable there. Um, but the fact is, lots of fairly seedlings don't look that different from each other, a lot of them. In the earliest stages, they're hard to tell apart. Um, so you seem to have a fairly generic pattern there. The differences come out later in both animals and plants, the later formed structures. Anyway, I think that this creativity and adaptation enables us to understand that there's a... Whenever you have all these physically new environments and meandering rivers, lava flows, recolonization, moving from island to island, and so forth, these, as you say, create new environments, micro-environments, and lead to a great deal of creativity. There's one other thing that this theory suggests, is not only would you have this creativity through adaptation in individual organisms, you'd also, by morphic resonance, have transfer of forms from place to place. So conspecific species um, could be an appearance just by morphic resonance, copying of forms, like in the placental mammals and the marsupials, where you've got all these parallel forms. Well, it would augment the natural selection of separated gene genera. Yes. Oh. Well, these things all work, work together. I mean, there's right. still natural selection of gene pools, but it's, it's a rather foreshortened view of the whole process, oh. which involves creativity, adaptation, spread of habits as well, oh. in my opinion. And so I suppose the thing that puzzles me most, really, is why there haven't been more species and more forms in Hawaii. Um, you know, we look around this rainforest here and there's a, you know, just one or two tree species, whereas in a tropical rainforest in the Amazon or Malaysia, there'd be hundreds. It, again, the answer is time. 200, you know, 300 million years versus 20 million years. Um, that's what it is. Well, there's so many reasons to fail here. I personally find the environment harsh, or lush as it may look to you or other people. And I suppose that uh, one one way a new species could fail is through having uh, bad habits. There may be habits that manifest visually to us only in terms of spatial pattern. The uh, colonization of the black lava by these trees, what are they called? Uh, oh, the Ohio. The Ohia tree. This appears in a, in a certain uh, fractal pattern in which there are characteristic frequencies of, of distances that have to do, I suppose, with uh, the distance the seeds fly in the wind or, or something like that. There is a certain spatial pattern which is the necessary one for survival that has a kind of a morphic resonance, I mean a resonance of space-time pattern with the physical substrate itself. And other species, although they would look equally strong or stronger in the environment of a, of a planetarium, if they um, dispersed in the, the lava, they can't make it because their spatial characteristic is wrong. So in the change of a species that may not involve DNA, could be a change of habit in terms of the spatial 
distribution. It could just be uh, response to a nutrient that causes a change of size and therefore uh, characteristic distance in the, in the space-time patterns. We seem to see that, well first we see the lichen. The lichen creates the, just the minimum of degradation of the surface that makes it possible for the Opea tree to, to uh, grab a hold. And the, the lichen as a pattern is obviously fractal, is sort of characteristically fractal, and the, the lava surface is fractal as well. And fractal, if it means that there's a resonance across scales, then the lichen scale, which is much smaller, is there may be many kinds of lichen, but only this one goes because its fractal pattern is, in spite of the apparent difference in scale, because of resonance across scales, has the right basic form, something like the time wave, so that, as a matter of fact, is compatible with the bare rock. And then the Ophia tree is compatible with the, but its fractal pattern, apparently on a much larger scale, is nevertheless resonant, harmonious, as opposed to other species that might be disharmonious. And this harmony, this capability of a certain space-time pattern is, is a habit which may um, change and adapt in a way that requires no change in DNA at all. It's a mm. non-genetic variation, just in uh, mm. resonance to some kind of morphic field. So you're talking about the evolution and development of whole ecosystems, and I think what's interesting about that is that these ecosystems get established, then there's repeated lava flows, and they're wiped out again and again and again. Divided. And Divided, and then re lava flows are recolonized. The entire ecosystem has to move, not just single species. Yes. So you've got a portable ecosystem. Right. Yes. Maybe that's why it has to travel light. And evolving um, one, or learning point. one, too. <laughs> Good point. I mean, because the Amazon forest, you know, to have the whole thing tra to transport the whole of that, where they've some seeds dropped to the ground, others are blown by oh, wind, others are carried right. by. But I mean, to get the whole thing to move, uh, you know, if you could, if the whole thing just had to move from place to place, I mean, what it's had to do in the past, I suppose, is adapt to changing rivers and adapt to shifting cultivation much more recently. But here, the whole thing. But strangely enough, uh, the Amazon too is an incredibly uh, inhospitable place. Uh, it's all what's called podzolic sand. In, in terms of the way foresters measure these things, this is a much more hospitable place in that in the Amazon, at any given moment, talking about, say, for instance, the Rio Ajaga Valley, 98% of all organic matter is bound within a living system. In other words, there's no detritus on the forest floor, there's no falling leaf. Well, here, it's probably 80%, something like that. There is detritus, there are fungi, there are pockets of soil. The Amazon is in a frenzied state of recycling. Uh, a palm frond falls and you pass the same place 20 minutes later and it's gone. It was 16 feet long and 5 <laughs> feet wide. It's gone. The ants have just taken it. And uh, this is the rate at which uh, it was estimated that uh, minerals in rainwater falling in the Amazon flow an average distance of one half centimeter before being completely bound and absorbed in the organic systems. 
Well, there's so many trees per square kilometer, and there's this climax forest 200 feet high, and, and here everything is very sparse and thin. Is it just, it just needs 250 million years or something to thicken up? No, it's 19 <laughs> degrees north, which is a long way north. It's a pseudotropical forest in my estimation. It would not be nearly this lush if it weren't that it's... Uh, its climate is created not by its latitude, but by the ocean. Uh, it is bathed by warm currents, in the same way that England's climate is, in a sense, uh, a godsend. Nobody that far north should expect temperatures like that, and nobody this far north should expect a situation like this. But it's just very mild, very stable, and... Uh, and that accounts for it. I believe it's on the latitude of Mazatlan. Uh, going back now to this question of the, the morphogenetic field of an entire ecosystem, mm-hmm. I'm bothered by the creation myth, and I just want to ask you guys about this. In this creation myth for the Hawaiian Islands ecosystem that you described, there was um, there, there are these islands which have already disappeared, and the ecosystem have jumped from them onto Kauai and and so on. But as I understand, these islands are rafting along over this more or less stationary hotspot. Those um, earlier islands were also right here where we are sitting today, also very distant from any continental landmass. So is day one of biology on the Hawaiian island chain was, we are to understand, a result of long-distance dispersion because of rafting and birds came, but then they had to recreate an entire ecosystem. It seems so coincidentally similar to island ecosystems elsewhere. Almost Because they've had to follow the same creodes and were constrained by the same process. Nothing happened until the right lichen arrived after the failure of millions of years of bird and raft carried. Well, the lichen, I suspect, is it could probably be found in air samples above any point on the planet. Um, yes, so you've got spores as the first colonizers. Yes, and then the ferns come next. And, of course, the reason... The non-flowering plants conquered the planet, if you think about it, is because the planet was like Hawaii. It was new lava, it was endless lava flows, and the ferns could do, get cold. We think of ferns as soft and somehow spoiled plants, actually. (laughs) They're the toughest plants around. When we study biology, they teach you silotum. You have to dissect silotum. It's held up as the most primitive land plant. This forest is full of silotum, I can point it out to you. And uh, these guys are tough. They're tough. They're tough. Yes, this is but the But how archae- did they get here? These seeds are carried by birds. Well spores, no well yeah, sure, spores. Mud on the feet of migratory birds <laughs> could carry millions of spores. Well, this is this is one of my favourite explanations. John Michel particularly likes this. The Fortians, it's one of their beloved explanations. You see, the Fortians have studied the phenomena where you have new pools appear, lakes are created, right. and so forth. And within 
you know, 20 years or something, they've got all the things a regular lake should have, you know, the right flora, tadpoles, the right kind of fish swimming in the water, you know, daphnia, water beetles, and so forth. And the nearest lake may be many, many miles away. So the explanation for this that's accepted without question is that they all got there on duck's feet. And so the duck's foot hypothesis is well, used by... spores, <laughs> I think, are, well, are a spores, little more reasonable. Spores are a little more reasonable, but the Fortians have a great time with the duck's foot hypothesis. Obviously, which these I find spores your... mutate into mallard ducks, cattails, <laughs> uh, minnows... Well, no, they have their own explanation, the teleportation theory. And, you see, they believe that nature airports a vacuum, and that when the, when the right thing is needed by the ecosystem, if it's not there, it simply teleports it from where it is. So you need to assemble a tropical forest. You've got to have trees, tree ferns, liane-type vines. You know, the whole thing, certain regulation things, a tropical tree forest morphic, tropical forest morphic field ought to have. Hawaii's, Hawaii satisfies those criteria with the minimum number of species. Right. But the fact is it has to have all those. And so they think that all these cryptozoological reports of pumas in Scotland and, you know, jackasses on Dartmoor and so on, that these, these things... I'm sure that happens. <laughs> <laughs> these, these reports of, uh, you know, they love these, and falls of fishes. You know that the falls of fishes and of frogs when animals just fall from the sky. Well, can we agree that they represent uh, sort of the trailing edge of a bell curve of <laughs> probability? No, I don't think we can, because I think that they... <laughs> I think that there's no... The reports are indisputable. Fish fall from the sky, people cracking open t stones that have been there for thousands and thousands of years find living toads embedded within them. But, you see, they accept, they, they take the teleportation hypothesis seriously. There's evidence of it in the human realm. You know, Sai Baba seems to manifest things that could be teleported and so on. Um, if that's their best exhibit, they better run cover. Oh, my God. Well, I think I that there's... I would my chickens along with Sai Baba. <laughs> <laughs> would you? Would you leave your chickens alone? No, I don't think they'd be um, in danger of teleportation and would appear yeah, minimum somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> at a minimum. Anyway, if species can move... There's a way in which they might be able to move, or be reconstituted, or by in ways of, over and above spores, seeds, rafts, etc. And that, I think, makes may seem of minimal interest in the context of the Earth, the merely eccentric theory. It comes much more interesting when we take up your theme of uh, the Earth itself being an island, and the biology on Earth being an island biology. When we then consider how things could have moved through from other planets in maybe other star systems, then duck's feet are out for starters. <laughs> um, you, I mean, you can get in the sort well, of film that... I mean, there's the the <laughs> that there's an underlying set of resonances that matter will flow along similar creodes in similar regimes of chemistry and pressure, whether they're here or in orbit around Arcturus. And, and so... I mean, this is what fuels the expectation that on an Earth-like planet there would be Earth-like beings. Uh, but I would say by morphic resonance, you see, because I think the two planets would be in resonance if it was sufficiently Earth-like. So 
so you then have the idea of a, a kind of resonance phenomenon driving evolution or leading to forms of life which have never before appeared there but which have appeared somewhere else in the universe now without the need for spores seeds or rust well there are evolutionary puzzles that i think completely defeat any kind of darwinism or neo-darwinism mm. the prime example being the metamorphosis of beetles and butterflies i mean here is a process which involves the perfect coordination of hundreds of not thousands of genes simultaneously imagining any gradual process that would proceed gene by gene over eons to end up with something like that happening to an organism defies credibility i just can't feature it clearly thousands of genes were changed in one or two moves to achieve that and uh, uh, no no way no ordinary process of, of gene reshuffling that I'm familiar with could account for that I you do not hear this discussed no it comes in that category of macro mutation which biologists don't like to discuss yeah. when you have a large change of a lot of coordinated things but after all the insects are probably the dominant order on the planet in terms of biomass in terms of species number in terms of the number of environments they can inhabit so in other words the conquest of this planet by life preceded by a mechanism metamorphosis currently un completely a black box to modern biology Well, I think there's a startup problem whether on the scale of the whole planet or an island in the Hawaiian chain. I I just uh can imagine that the frequency of ducks flying is enough to allow the ducks feet hypothesis to explain the arrival of correct species and correct temporal sequence in so short of time that I mean, they would have to just be dumping literally dump truck loads of different genetic material on a daily basis on the brand new island in order to have a chance to get started. The studying of banded birds and this seems to show that there's a lot of material moving around and that a million years is a long, long time and that a number of improbable things can go on in a million years. Well, I've been here for a week. I have not seen a new species of bird arrive from the mainland. <laughs> <laughs> well, stick around. <laughs> well, has anyone ever worked out? I know they've banded they've banded the birds all right, but have they counted the number of birds, the number of the, the number of spores they can possibly carry in a full what load? Graduate students are for Ralph. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the work of the study of the Hawaiian Islands. Well, on the major models of these birds coming and going from Vancouver and Baja California over dumping a load and returning, carrying uh, one one hundredth of a gram of biological material on each trip, and of those, one out of a thousand uh, survives, and out of those, and you discover. Well, okay, let's accept in part the duck's foot hypothesis in its broader form. Migratory birds, <clears throat> pretty plausible. Birds do migrate from place to place over large distances. Indeed, many call in Hawaii. I looked up in your bird book and saw there were quite a number of migrants from different directions. So, 
here's uh, we accept this for the purpose of argument. Now, which is cause and which is effect? No one knows why birds migrate in the patterns they do, and no one the evolutionary basis for migration. Sometimes we hear land masses gradually moved apart and they have to move further and further over oceans, and, but in fact, migratory routes are kinds of habits. They can new ones have evolved in recent decades in Britain. No, I don't think it is migratory birds. I think that the process is primarily one of, of a novelty, unusual events, catastrophes, the greatest storm of the century, every century. Birds blown off course. Birds blown off course. It's but not about the, habits. The fewer numbers it's about are disruption. reduced to such a small uh, level that it's hard to imagine all of these coincidences necessary for the reconstruction of an ecology. A single storm veering off course might equal a century of ordinary dispersal. But these migratory habits of birds are presumably quite old in many cases. And every time there's an ice age pumps the evolutionary process, presumably birds that do migrate have to change the places they migrate to. And in the last 10,000 years, the great bulk of northern Europe and North America has opened up as a habitat, much more recent than anything we're looking at here. We have to remember we live in pioneer, recolonized communities ourselves if we come from most of the northern hemisphere. London, was, the ice cap went down to Hampstead in the north of London 10,000 years ago. The, most of England is a recolonized and recently recolonized ecology. Quite common. All the, the birds that migrate have to adapt over thousands or even hundreds of years, short term adaptations. It seems to me that um, if birds have a kind of collective map which they share with other birds that have migrated and can tune into a kind of bird collective unconscious, that some species migrating over certain routes and knowing about Hawaii may enable others starting off in that direction to follow a kind of pre-existing creode, rather like existing jet flight paths. Um, I was amused when we came here to Hawaii, we were flying in this jet plane and outside the window about a hundred feet away was a, was a vapor trail which we followed exactly for two hours presumably of the previous jet flight to Hawaii, and they were a hundred feet apart. You know, so there may be kind of creode memory channel bird migration paths, and many species often follow the same paths, like around the Mediterranean coast and over the Straits of Gibraltar into North Africa and so on. Mm -hmm. So um, we could have a whole kind of bird mind, and when the Hawaiian Islands appear, long-distance migrants like albatrosses or whatever the largest seabirds are here, but in any case spend a lot of time at sea, recognize this fact and start coming here. Somehow this gets into the bird map, and other species, rather than whole flocks of them starting out lemming-like from the coast of California in the hope of finding an island by chance 2,500 miles away, are actually doing it with a great deal more confidence. Mm. Then we'd have the idea of the appearance of new land, if it actually channeled bird migration routes towards it, because the word got around pretty fast and they were able to adapt. And then the duck's foot hypothesis would still be plausible, but plausible for a different reason. For this direction by a committee in the sky, the, uh, the uh, nature, the, the vacuum abhorrence committees, whoops, in New Ireland Pacific, tell the albatrosses to do their job as sort of a pack train to build, bring as much genetic material as rapidly as possible and dump it on the New Islands. <laughs> Sounds oh, like one of the adventures of Dr. Doolittle, <laughs> you can see. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, well, I think there are, there are one or two more points if you've time and patience. Sure. Yes. Let's do it all. Um, if you can wait just a moment. When a new island comes up, then the entire mm, database of the migratory birds and all the other species is somehow informed of this, that the geography is the basis of biogeography after all. Well, this kind of came up just the other day. The, how did the original people who came here find it? And one obvious hypothesis that struck us was that if they were keen observers of migrant birds, right. they'd notice that birds set off from their islands in a particular direction right. and came back again, and it would therefore be a fairly simple deduction that if you follow the migrant birds, you'll reach land sooner or later. That's right. That's what east is a big bird means. So following the birds then is no less of a mystery than the birds themselves being able to migrate. So either the people could follow the birds who navigate by some unknown mysterious means, or the people could have had access to similar mysterious means themselves. And when a new island came up, then the information is uh, somehow injected into their own migration patterns, which is whatever guides them, which they may consider to be celestial navigation or whatever in their uh, canoe rides from one island to another. Well, all we have to do is to add in the cetacean factor, and we'll have a complete series. <laughs> 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 um, the, the animals that presumably notice, first of all, that um, volcanoes are erupting beneath the sea two or three, four, four ten thousand feet down, causing a great deal of hissing, steam, and commotion, presumably marine animals, sure. fish, things that dwellers on the, on the marine floor, and presumably there's a whole microenvironment of warm water-loving water creatures that well, moves along the base of the islands. thousands and thousands of miles. And the whales have this telegraph system, and they send telegrams to each other, and then finally the dolphins know, and they communicate to birds who are friends of theirs. The very fact that it's all tied together, as it were, is the only reason that it can all work and that without the tying together of all living things in one giant worldwide web, there would, as a matter of fact, be no life, certainly no new life on a new island like Hawaii. That sounds reasonable. Yes, I think so. I, think I so. mean, if one isn't too tightly uh, constrained in the definition of communication, it obviously and without the communicative web, the informational sharing system, then it's all impossible. And even though we don't know how these communications take place, we nevertheless, we can sort of deduce that without communication it doesn't work. Interspecies communication makes it all go. Yes. And if we... Um this is an idea, again, that came up when Ralph and I were talking a couple of days ago. We postulate that plants have a kind of dolphin or whale-like telepathic relationship between them. Then uh, plants of similar species on different continents would be able to read out an oak tree, for example, now planted on every continent and native. If you take in the whole genus, you'd have a wide, wide band of the old world and the new covered. 
Um, if these, any of these, if they were uh, linked or resonating together in a, in a complete kind of uh, oak mind, any one of them would know what was happening with the weather as a storm passed over Wales and the oaks all registered it and the stone had closed or opened or whatever. Or as some great catastrophic lava flow occurred somewhere else, you know, Mount St. Helens erupted or something. Well, I think John Donne covered this territory. Right? No man is an island entirely himself. Each is a part of a continent, a part of a main. Each man's death diminishes me. Therefore, I have never sinned to know for whom the bell tolls. Tolls for thee. But the conversation of the oaks that transcends that uh, um, homocentric view, that this is... Um, this is closer to children's books, children's stories, and the lost mythology of the communication of uh, humans, animals, and plants that we're proposing is, I think, for many people, stranger than a living toad inside a dead rock. That is the basis of shamanism worldwide. Yeah. It's what shamanism is all about communication on this interface between the human world and the world of plants and animals. And presumably it's Shaman who discovered the powers of plants, the humanly relevant powers of plants, including the psychoactive powers of plants, and explore them. And it's Shaman who entered the mind of animals and, and have animal totems and animal spirits and can find out the ways of animals um, for practical purposes. So if this, we see this communication, we see that pets, as we were talking about, can find out what people are up to in surprising and astonishing ways at a distance. We've already got ingredients that point towards the possibility of a worldwide web of communication between plants and animals and animals and people and so forth. Well, I think the, print, the technological principle on which the next century will operate is the mimicking of nature. Solid state, micro-miniaturized, solar-based, uh, no moving parts, uh, so forth. But a lot of that is the mimicry of nature as perceived through a filter so narrow that maybe the most essential functions of nature are not even recognized and therefore what is mimicked is, is a non-working skeleton of a dead nature as it were. Well, what but for instance, solar cells obviously depend on an understanding of photosynthesis and it would be a brighter world if all electrical power were produced that way. Similarly, processes of fermentation are better than processes that, that require more high molecular weight solvents. It sounds right, but actually I, I think that uh, photoelectric devices as known today are not only much simpler than photosynthesis, but they, they were understood at a time when photosynthesis was not understood, and even now is not, the whole chain is perhaps not completely clear. And they take oh, the bare essentials but leave out the whole of plant morphology. Well, but all these plants are photosynthetic. Solid state quality, that's all I'm Well, saying. they started to make them as single crystals, and then this is very expensive, so when they make them more fractals, like 
past. The more the seed comes. Yes. So uh, I think that the imitation of nature would be disastrous if we can't learn to see it better. That somehow we need more means of opening the scientific stranglehold on the observational powers of the human. Well, but there are current only two aesthetic uh, schools on the menu, the imitation of nature. But we're leaving out the alternative that arises from the possibilities we're talking about. I mean, if nature is involves this worldwide web of communication, if there are flows of information from people to animals, animals to people, migrating birds, dolphins, and so forth, all these things being reflected in the population and uh, of this isolated set of volcanic islands. And well, it sounds like care. connectivity is the overarching matter. Well, now we come to the true spiritual purpose of the digital World Wide Web, which is a training ground for appreciating the mechanism and the characteristics, to be learning to observe the global phenomenon of worldwide webs, so that with this training in childhood and early so it's adulthood... So it's an analog for nature. Yeah. Quite. At yes. present, we're limited to analogs of mechanics, you know, and in, in the case of morphic resonance, radio and TV, because the underlying metaphor is radio and TV. Um, the, but here we have another metaphor, and since science can only work in terms of metaphors, and so far it's only worked in terms of mechanical metaphors, here's an expanded mechanical metaphor. But I think it would only really work if it converges with an expanded mental or psychic metaphor, and I suppose the psyches of the people connected through the web are that. I mean, so what the thing lacking from it as an evolutionary model, for me, was the lack of it having a field-like quality, but just a kind of series of interconnected bits, rather like in these artificial life models, where you just have units that join up. Um, <clears throat> I think a field-like quality would be uh, make it much more interesting. That could happen if the community of people doing follow the suggestion of the Russian eccentric um, Constantine Ivanenko, who's always writing to me with his scheme for a total transformation of humanity through people linked up by computer nets, chanting together at the same time and intentionally um, creating what he calls a psychotronic revolution, uh, where, which would entrain the consciousness of all those doing it more than just the operation of the mechanics of this thing does by synchronized chanting, which would be coordinated through the net itself. And Very interesting. That's his vision. He's been going about this for years. He thinks that could cause the emergence of a shift in consciousness. The network won't do it by itself. And I think that that's what's lacking from the network by itself and from the standard physical linkage theories of evolution. Even this if we is sort of the harmonic convergence idea. If we all go stand on nearby mountaintops at exactly the same instant throughout the entire biosphere, then somehow that would precipitate uh, phase transition. Exactly, and many people would ridicule this as saying this is what peace protesters were doing all through the 70s, visualizing peace all over Eastern Europe and the ending of the Cold War. And as the smile comes to their lips, it tends to freeze, because, of course, that's exactly what's happened. 
And although so, the harmonic convergence is a less successful piece of evidence and seems to indicate that this area of thinking can become a redoubt of diseased intellect. But it shows that people go for it <laughs> and that really respond to it, because otherwise why would so many of us have been gathered in obscure parts of the globe chanting at dawn, in, in my case at Glastonbury, in a light drizzle, <coughs> along with Sir George Trevelyan on the top of Glastonbury tour. How are so many people engaged in this activity if it isn't deeply attractive? And we I'm Americans can answer this question for you. It's called hype, and we've perfected it, and I think you were hyped. Hype is a resonance phenomenon, but not the only one. But hype has a great... Hype, only certain kinds of hype work. All the subsequent ones he's convened haven't. So this one actually worked in, in a new kind of way. And you see, I think it's possible that if we look at the whole world, there may be a kind of global chance triggered off by sunspot cycles. Life all over the world may, just as it has pulses through the ice ages, it may be being any, pulsed. Any theory which has this gathering together in large crowds to chant should look back at the Third Reich before it proceeds too far with its agenda. Well, in this case, they're not in large crowds. They're spread out over the surface of the Earth or in Each front of their computers. Ah, oh, <laughs> homegrown fascism. <laughs> Decentralized fascism. Well, it shows that only if, you in, uh, only if there's a ritual or a, um, a kind of conscious, intentional resonating aspect of this, will this field, will this network have any kind of dimension of a field? Because this could create a field. Well, but in a way, when you think of it, the whole Nazi thing was the invocation of Yeah, the it was very successful. Group resonance. It was an appeal to the, the folk mind. Well, so were all calls to war by nations, bishops, crusaders, you know. This is why I think Heidegger was far wrong when he said the way you judge uh, uh, reality is by the depth of the call, because the call can be deep and it can still be haywire. I know, but you see, we're all the victims of a call, a call to move west, for example. I mean, we've wound up here, now at the ultimate limit of the west. Well, except the westernmost Hawaiian island, I suppose. You know, the trilogs at the edge of the west have made it... Uh, Here we know, are. <laughs> a further, further 2,500 miles. So there's this westward alarm which causes... Um, well, in the case of the British, it was an eastward movement. I mean, migratory peoples migrate to England, Anglo-Saxons settle, etc., sort of wipe out the native people or subjugate them. You know, they're on the move again after a few hundred years. The British Empire, you know, the settlement of North America and similar process from Spain. And now, having gone right across North America, subjugated and they wiped out its natives, eliminated their culture, the whole process has moved here. We can see that happening before our very eyes. Something which, in terms of evolution, shows the opposite of everything we've been talking about so far. The, now there's no separation of the islands from TV networks and satellite linkages and the internet itself. Well, um, one of the most frightening trends, I think, in modern culture is the wish to build shopping malls everywhere. There is a mentality that would like to turn the planet into an international airport arrival concourse. That's their idea 
of utopia. Based on America. The model for all of this is always America, you see. I suppose. And so now there's this kind of clonal culture moving worldwide through media, through me? which has the opposite effect to all the speciation, diversification, and evolutionary creativity we've been talking about. So we see the opposite process at work in Hawaii today. It's like the stifling a of the native culture. America's a cultural bulldozer. Yes. It just tramples and destroys everything in its path. But that, you see, is simply an expression of this westward migratory urge which underlies all the people who migrated to America, of whatever race or background, they all migrated, that's what brought them there. And this migratory urge, which has been, I suppose, very strong in all sorts of human populations, and um, indeed, maybe just yet another manifestation of the migratory age we see in birds and in plants and, and indeed in the movement of life from planet to planet. Well, there the, appears to be a double gradient here with the eastward migration of Asian people uh, kind of balancing the westward migration of European people. And this is yes. actually the, the interface where some, um, the double gradient can produce an increase of novelty and new mutations and a forward leap perhaps of human evolution could be here because of this double wave phenomenon. A standing wave is forming wave. here as forces move both east and west. So can we point to any human creativity of Hawaii that exemplifies that like in the Malaysian archipelago the coming together of two great flora and fauna systems UK systems. Can we see that creativity well, in evidence? I haven't noticed well, it Well, I suppose Pearl Harbor was the moment of the greatest impact of East and West. And then the right. result of that, of course, was the deployment of nuclear weapons. And whereas we don't like this, it is definitely a novel evolutionary or counter-evolutionary step. It's and creative, hated as we might. And Pearl Harbor itself being a volcanic derivative you know, has this kind of volcanic effect on world politics. It's interesting that that radiated out the whole biogeography, I mean, political geography of today, was shaped, was shaped by, by Pearl Harbor, as we know from all elementary accounts, with a lot of background and so on. But there we have another role of Hawaii. I wonder if you've reflected on that. Well, certainly the defeat of fascism and the solidification of American opinion to go with Churchill uh, relied on that to the point where some historians have felt that Roosevelt knew what the Japanese were planning and he allowed it to happen because he wanted to go with Churchill and he was, couldn't figure out a way to solidify opinion. So yes, that was its moment. On the geopolitical stage. But it was also the moment of conflict of East and West, East, uh, Eastern and Western power. The Japanese sought to expand their influence in the world oh, yes. and were held back by military means in the end. They've now succeeded economically where they failed militarily, and here in Hawaii, at least uh, politically, if you uh, no, tell this me, was the Japanese the control the Eastern Vienna. Vienna. If, if the Turks were stopped at the walls of Vienna, then the Japanese were stopped at Pearl Harbor. So apparently that's the, that's the domain from Honolulu to Vienna. That's Western civilization's turf.
But is it really the creative interface it could be between East and West? Because now it's a kind of stalemate with roughly half of the island's population coming from the East and half from the West with the native Hawaiians trapped in between. Well, I think the specific rim culture that is hypothesized to be emerging, Hawaii is central to all of that. It's equal distant from Sydney, Lima, Tokyo, and Vancouver. Have they adopted the slogan, come to Hawaii, the Pacific hub, yet? If they haven't, I'm sure they're not <laughs> far behind. The presence of these telescopes here makes it uh, a center of world science, uh, at least in astronomy. I think the world's first, second, and third largest telescopes are on this island, with an identical twin of the largest being built a few hundred yards away from it. And uh, the Maxwell 4 millimeter, uh, there's an amazing concentration of science on, on, on a cave. Mm. So it's a channel, perhaps, uh, at least in the human realm, for linking us with the stars. Another important theme. We're looking out in our the top of Hawaii. That's right. Chosen paradoxically for being the darkest place on from here they'll see the, the next wave of duck's feet <laughs> on there. arriving for the biosphere too. Well, what do you think? <clears throat> I think that covers the waterfront. Round to a halt. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I have a, a question for you. Do you know why I think that you would be able to fit right in perfectly at that kitchen table with Ralph, Terrence, and Rupert? Well, it's simple. Uh, <laughs> because like those three amigos, uh, you're spending your time listening to this podcast rather than uh, talking about last night's football game uh, or something like that with your friends. Like it or not, uh, some kind of uh, strange mind virus has gotten a hold of us and uh, is causing us to listen to a long-winded conversation instead of listening to music right now. But if I were you, I'd uh, get back to the music right away. But if you're uh, still here with me, uh, I'll just ramble on a little bit more. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, I really enjoyed hearing Terrence talk about butterflies. Although it isn't something he talked about very often, collecting butterflies was uh, one of the first things he did after leaving college, if I'm not mistaken. And just a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the new book that Terrence's daughter just published that contained photos of some of the butterflies he collected. And I'll put another link to that book uh, with the program notes to this podcast. But uh, his mention of the way uh, butterflies mutate and change their patterns on their wings uh, in order to fool the birds who preyed on them got me to uh, thinking about something that uh, either he or Tim Leary said on another podcast recently uh, about how you can no longer pick out the heads because uh, the rest of the culture has co-opted the way that uh, all the heads now look. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, why it's so hard to find the others. Maybe everyone is uh, one of the others, but we're all too afraid to speak up and say so. That's an interesting thought, huh? I know uh, that it happened to me once. Uh, you know, a guy who is now one of my closest friends, uh, he and I worked together for almost a year before we discovered that we shared an interest in psychedelics. 
You know, uh, I'm not holding my breath about seeing an end to the prohibition of our sacred medicines during my lifetime. All I'm really hoping to live to see is a world in which we can at least discuss them as freely as we talk about the weather or sports. And I, I also liked uh, Terrence's comment uh, that when there's a shifting boundary, that uh, that's where the mutants can thrive. Well, uh, it seems to me like a, a lot of boundaries are beginning to shift all around the planet. Let's hope that spells good news for us uh, psychedelic mutants. And I'm, I'm not talking about the science fiction version of mutants here. Uh, what I'm talking about is a, a new and improved form of humanity, uh, one that can be passed on to our young. Just take a look around and uh, ask yourself if you want to reincarnate as uh, yet another mindless consumer or do you want to uh, mutate into an intelligent, uh, focused, purposeful human being? So let's hear it for the mutants. Uh -huh. Another thing that uh, struck me when Terrence was talking about evolution, uh, perhaps just trying things for the sake of variety, reminded me of a book that uh, you might be interested in. It's uh, Stephen Wolfram's book, A New Kind of Science. And uh, now I, I'll warn you ahead of time uh, that if, if you're like me, it'll take you probably more than a year to finish reading it. It, it did for me. But uh, some people, and I count myself among them, uh, happen to think that Wolfram's ideas are as uh, profound as Newton's were when they were first introduced. And uh, they are as uh, little understood as well, I might add. But in any event, uh, one of the points he argues for in that book is uh, close to what Terence was saying about evolution trying all kinds of things, uh, like a mad tinkerer or something like that. It's an interesting take on the uh, processes of evolution, and uh, not one that's uh, completely accepted or hardly accepted at all by the mainstream, uh, which of course uh, makes me want to look at it all the more closely. And uh, speaking of the mainstream and ways in which our sacred medicines are entering that flow, wasn't it nice to see that piece uh, floating around the net recently about the brilliant uh, Latin American writer uh, Isabel Allende? Uh, here's part of the email I'm talking about, and I quote, When Allende herself encounters the rare-for-her but dreaded writer's block, she finds an unusual way around it. She drinks a potent shamanic rainforest hallucinogen and disappears into her mind for several days. During this unorthodox excursion, Isabel, and uh, the following text is actually from uh, Isabel Allende's uh, new memoir, The Sum of Our Days, where she says, I crossed through the opening and effortlessly plunged into an absolute void. There was no sensation, no spirit, not a trace of individual consciousness. Instead, I felt divine, absolute presence. I was inside the goddess, something I can only define as love, an impression of oneness. I dissolved into the divine. I felt there was no separation between me and the rest of all that exists, all that was light and silence. I was left with the certainty that we are spirits, and all that is material is illusory. That's the end of her quote. Uh, she also writes that uh, on that voyage, she lost her fear of, fear of death and uh, her writer's block as well. And then uh, she resumed her writing, uh, usual writing schedule and began working for uh, 10 to 12 hours a day until uh, she completed a book. 
And uh, speaking of uh, someone else who is uh, putting in a lot of work each week for our community, uh, I want to thank Allison Terry for her exceptional work of uh, transcribing six of our podcasts so far. And I've, I've posted links to these transcriptions on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you can find at uh, www.psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, five of them are uh, Terrence McKenna lectures, and the other is a talk by Ann Shulgin. Uh, not only does uh, Allison's work help uh, various scholars who are working on books involving the work of Terrence McKenna, her transcriptions now mean that uh, some of Ann Shulgin's and Terrence McKenna's brilliance will uh, be available for Google to index and uh, bring yet more minds to their work. So uh, thank you so very much, Allison, uh, on behalf of our entire community. And once I get caught up a bit, I plan on uh, including some of Allison's comments about Terrence's work here in the uh, salon. Uh, after spending so much time with him, uh, phrase by phrase, she has uh, some interesting comments uh, that I think you'll be uh, interested in hearing. So, uh, Allison, I know that I owe you an email or two, and I'll get back to our project soon. I'm uh, just running way behind so far this year. And maybe uh, I can catch up a bit by uh, reading this email from Jeff M., because uh, it's similar to uh, quite a few others I've received. And uh, so I'll try to catch up with a bunch of you with uh, this one, and then uh, pointing you to a thread that I uh, plan to begin over at thegrowreport.com. Here's what uh, Jeff had to say. I have uh, heard the names of many books that sound fascinating in the talks you put out, so I would greatly appreciate it if you would suggest a few of them that you think I would enjoy. I think that I would be especially interested in any books about consciousness, science, and the universe. I'm sure those are broad topics, and you have many books you could suggest. So I leave it up to you to continue to guide my psychedelic thinking. P.S. A side effect of my recent fascination with consciousness has been a love for dreams. I am teaching myself how to become a lucid dreamer and have had some success so far. I was so excited when I saw your recent podcast titled Psychedelic Dreams, but even though it was fascinating, it was not on the subject I thought it would be on. If there are any talks or books that you would like to suggest to amuse my interest in dreams, please say so. Well, uh, like I said, I'll try to get a thread going. Maybe somebody else can get it going before I get out there. But uh, I don't know of any good dream books right offhand, but I'm uh, sure some of our fellow slaughters do. And that they also have some good ideas about your uh, first question. So I'll be watching uh, what others have to say uh, over there and uh, adding my own two cents once in a while. Another email uh, comes from Matt R., who says, I'm a new listener to your podcast, and I really enjoy it. In one of your podcasts, either you or someone else mentioned that they like Seattle. They went on to mention that if it wasn't for other issues, they would probably want to live there. Do you remember this or happen to know what issues they were talking about? I live near Seattle, and I'm starting to get uneasy about the fault lines below us. Is that what they were referring to, or is it there are certain locations that are predicted to be more dangerous at the 2012 event? Just curious if you know what insight that person had about the Seattle area. Hmm. I don't remember anything about a fault line. Uh, the only comment I think I might have made would have been uh, about the long, wet winters uh, up in that part of the world. I've uh, kind of become addicted to seeing the sun every day now that I live here in Southern California. And so uh, I might have slipped up and said something along those lines, but uh, I don't know anything about fault lines up that way. Yeah, maybe some of our fellow saloners do, but uh, I do know I love the area and all the people up there, so uh, if it didn't rain so much, I'd uh, probably be living there. 
Another email comes from uh, Daniel L., who said, You might already be aware of this, but in case you're not, I wanted to tell you that Dr. Phil made an episode about salvia, a very negative and biased episode. For example, Dr. Phil tells a 16-year-old who got, quote, addicted to salvia that salvia is the cause he failed school, not mentioning that he might have failed school anyway and that it doesn't have to be attributed to salvia, as he automatically assumed. He also compared it to LSD and labeled all users of it as stupid. (laughs) Funny, uh, stupid is a word I would uh, actually use to describe Dr. Phil and his entire audience, including Oprah. But that's uh, just my opinion. Daniel goes on. Might be of interest to uh, comment on your podcast as it demonstrates very clearly and unsubtly how the media still tend to go demonize every drug and regard it as a teen problem. My suggestion is that you watch the episode before you go to bed as it otherwise might get you into a bad mood for the rest of the day. The show is available on YouTube in two parts, and uh, and I'll post a, a link uh, along with the program notes for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks for sending the link and uh, pointing that out, Daniel. As you say, uh, this once again clearly points out how much uh, disinformation about psychoactive substances is uh, being passed on by the corporate media. But uh, as for the non-corporate media... If you're interested in some uh, talk about the upcoming 2009 Burning Man Festival, you can uh, get a good taste of it on uh, Sancho and Cody's podcast, uh, Black Light in the Attic. I've uh, I've mentioned their podcast before because it's one of my favorites, and uh, and not just because I joined them in their uh, podcast number 14 to talk about their plans for this year's burn. And by the way, uh, I did buy my own ticket just yesterday, so uh, it looks like I'm committed to returning the Palenque Norte Playa Logs to Black Rock City again this year. And I can uh, almost hear the groans from some of our fellow slaughters who get tired of hearing me talk about Burning Man. But uh, take heart, because this year I'll try to keep uh, most of my Burning Man talk uh, confined to Sancho and Cody's podcasts, uh, rather than uh, repeat too many times uh, the same things over and over here. Of course, uh, I haven't told uh, Sancho and Cody that yet, uh, but I know that they're listening, and uh, they'll get the news right along with you. Uh, Hope that's all right with you guys. Uh, And by the way, I I didn't mention it when we talked on Skype the other day, but afterwards uh, it dawned on me that we hadn't known each other and hung out together for years like it felt like. You know, with all of the stories I've heard on uh, their podcasts, I feel like we're old friends, and... uh, I hope that's the way it is uh, with you and me, too. You know, even though we haven't been together in the same physical space, uh, we have been together here in the theater of the mind, here in cyberdelic space, and uh, somehow that uh, makes the world seem a little more friendly, uh, if you know what I mean. And I hear there's a a chance I'm actually going to get to meet Cody in person if he can uh, arrange to get out this way for the annual Southern California Writers Conference the uh, weekend of February 13th. Our friend Mateo, uh, by the way, has arranged for a $50 discount to listeners of the Sea Realm, Blacklight, and Psychedelic Salon podcast. So if you're interested in attending, uh, just tell the conference ticket sellers that uh, you're a listener uh, of this podcast and they uh, supposedly will give you the discount. And if they don't, uh, just look for Mateo, and I'm, uh, I'm sure he'll run interference for you, as he's done for me on more than one occasion. But I digress. 
Actually, uh, Matteo will uh, be teaching two workshops at the conference, uh, as well as doing uh, one-on-one manuscript uh, consultations. And I'll post the link so you can uh, see who all of the other speakers are. But if you do plan to attend, why don't you uh, go to www.mattpalamary.com and uh, let him know via the contact link uh, that you're going. And uh, maybe we'll put together a little mini salon or something like that. Another piece of information I want to pass along comes from Louis C., who says... After listening to the number 143 trilogue, Rethinking Societies, I was wondering what your opinion is on the Venus Project, Resource-Based Societies, or the Zeitgeist Movement. Hmm, where to begin? Uh, First of all, I should say that I don't know a whole lot about uh, any of them, other than uh, they seem on first glance to uh, be heading in the right direction. I've uh, visited the website of the Venus Project several times, and I find that I can uh, spend a significant amount of time there just uh, poking around and learning about the many interesting things that they're doing. And in general, it seems obvious that uh, we have to quickly learn how to convert our wasteful ways into a sustainable society. In fact, uh, that seems to me to be our most important project, Uh, yet uh, so many of us humans are spending the majority of our time and resources uh, building bigger and more lethal weapons. So uh, my hat is off to anyone and everyone who is uh, working on projects that will help lead us out of the dead end of consumerism, however fanciful and even unpractical some of them may seem. Any any movement that is peaceful, sustainable, and is repulsed by war is a step in the right direction in my book. And if I don't cut this off now, I'll never get back to working on my new, now long overdue book. But I do want to mention that there is a new interview uh, with Rupert Sheldrake that has recently been posted on shamanicfreedomradio.podomatic.com. This is a new podcast that I haven't yet had an opportunity to listen to, and uh, while I normally don't plug podcasts until they get uh, 10 or so episodes posted, but uh, since the podcaster is a fellow slaughter and participant over at the GrowReport.com forums, and uh, since his fourth program is an interview with someone we just heard from today, well, uh, I thought I'd tell you about it anyway, and uh, I do plan on listening to that interview in the next uh, few days myself. Now, uh, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.